Okay, um, so this, uh, this message I have been so excited about, so we're going to pray about it because I don't want to, uh, I want to get carried away. Father God, I thank you uh, for this morning. I just ask God that the excitement I'm feeling about this message, that I wouldn't get carried away, that you would slow me down, that you would say the things that you want to say this morning, that you would make clear the distinction that we as believers have with the rest of the world when it comes to the joy that we experience in knowing you. Father, that's what I want to be clear. So please, as we open your word, as we study it, may your voice be heard. And across our community, other people opening the word of God and teaching this morning, I pray that your voice would be heard there as well. And our colleagues and our friends and family members that attend other congregations, Father, I pray that they would hear from you, that you would draw the body of Christ and our community closer, that we could do works for you. That's the only thing that lasts. It's the only thing that we find joy in. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so I don't know if you saw this story. It happened a couple weeks ago. Are we going to, there it is. Uh, Anybody see the video of the brawl that happened at the Magic Kingdom in in Disney World? I don't know if you saw this. You got a family that's getting out of Mickey's Philhar Magic. It's right next to King Stephen's Golden Carousel. So you've got all of these kids and all these little people dancing around and how magical and wonderful. And one family gets mad at another family for jumping line. The other family has words. And pretty soon fists are flying. You got somebody's skull that gets fractured, blood pouring, arrests are made, families are banned from the park. And the thing that I love about this is that, that that Disney World calls itself in the Magic Kingdom the happiest place on earth. One of my favorite memories that I so wish that I could have preserved on cell phone video. I don't even remember if cell phones were really uh, like video and all that stuff back then because it was early in our marriage. And Jenny and I were at Disney World. We like Disney World. And we're there and we're crossing the bridge from Main Street over into Adventureland. There's a little white bridge right there. And you've got a mom. I think there was a dad there too, but he's an insignificant player in this story as is dads in most situations. But anyway, so mom is there and the two girls, probably five, seven, six or seven years old, they're in meltdown mode. Now, in fairness, it's 200% humidity, 112 degrees, making it approximately 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit. You've got a family that spent $6,000 to come and stand in line for three hours and ride a 30-second Winnie the Pooh ride that breaks down and the kids sleep through anyway because they're exhausted. So it's a great use of money. Anyway, the kids are in meltdown mode, and mom is done. And she looks at them, and this was the best thing I ever heard. She looked at him and said, this is magical, so start acting like it. (laughs) That right there should be the new slogan for Walt Disney World. This is magical, so start acting like it. Whenever I see these stories about happiness, it reminds me of something. Happiness is linked to our situations. It's linked to our circumstances. Happiness is linked to our health and our wealth. If we are healthy and we're able to do things, then we're happy. If we're bedridden and sick, we're not happy. If we have material prosperity and the ability to go and do things and buy things, we're happy. If we lack that, then we're unhappy. That's what happiness is. What it is, it's a spontaneous response to momentary pleasure. That's why when you're watching a football game and your team scores, you're happy. And 30 seconds later, when the other team runs back the kickoff for a touchdown, you're in the pit of despair because it is a spontaneous response to momentary pleasure. When things are going well, all is good with the world. In other words, here's what happiness does. It responds to your circumstances and your surroundings. 
That is what will determine your happiness. But joy, which is what we're reading about and talking about this morning, joy, Christian joy, is totally different. Joy is not tied to well-being. You can be sick, you can be poor, and still have joy. In fact, joy, properly understood, will shape your attitude towards your circumstances and surroundings. So see if this makes sense. you got circumstances and surroundings, and we all have them, okay? This controls your emotional response, your happiness. Happiness is controlled by your circumstances and situations. Make sense? Joy is over here. This is an indwelling. This is a feeling that you have inside that that will shape your attitude towards these things that will then affect your happiness in a situation. Does this make sense? How joy precedes those things and dictates to those things. Now, before I get carried away, because like I said, I'm very, very excited about this message. Next week, one I'm not nearly as excited about, and that's peace. Okay, we'll talk about peace. Who cares about peace? But anyway, that's next week. This is what I want you to think about as you're reading the passages for, or the passage for next week. What is the difference between the peace that God made with humanity? Okay, there's a peace there. The peace that he gives to humanity. And then the peace that he calls for, for us to live out. What's the difference in those things? Dwell on that. Think about that as you read Romans chapter 14. Okay, got it? That's peace for next week. Now let's get back to this. Last week when we were talking about love, we said there's a billion different descriptions and definitions of the word love. So what is it that Paul is talking about? And we said it's the word agape. Agape is God-like love that is self-sacrificial love. So what is the word that Paul then uses for this week for joy? This week that word is shara or chara. I don't know if they say they're CHs in that language or not. I'm probably sounding like a Hoosier chara. Uh, but anyway, that's what it is. Okay, that's the word that he uses, what it means is that you have a delight in God and God's beauty and God's character. You delight in who he is. Now stop right there. Is that ever going to change? Who God is, what his character is, his beauty, will it ever change? It will not ever change. So if you are delighting in those things, that is changeless regardless of what is happening to you down here. If your delight is placed in something changeless, then your joy is going to persist no matter what is happening around you. That remains constant regardless of your circumstances. Now the opposite, the world does not have Christian joy. The opposite of this chara is hopelessness and despair. Realizing who we are and what we are and what this world is. And even though there's fleeting moments of happiness, overall you're hopeless. And, and So what does the world do? The world has to cover that up. They don't have joy. They don't have Christian joy. So they have to try to cover up the hopelessness and despair. And maybe fool themselves into believing that they have something else. So they create a counterfeit. And that is that emotional elation that we feel. We try to convince ourselves that things are okay. And we cling to those things that make us feel happy. And we buy all of these books, these feel-good books. And we try to convince ourselves that the reality isn't what the reality is. Think back to the analogy that I gave you. The apple tree versus the fake Christmas tree. What does the apple tree do? The apple tree is going to produce its fruit naturally. It looks beautiful because of the life within it. The fruit just comes out of it because of the life within it. But then you have a dead artificial Christmas tree, and it looks pretty jank unless you do what? You hang ornaments all over it. You dress it up to try to make it look really, really good, but inwardly it's what? It's dead. 
Okay, you're just dressing it up on the outside. That's the world's counterfeit. They will try to create this, this vision for themselves. I'm not even saying for everybody else to convince you that they're happy. They're trying to convince themselves that they're okay, that life is okay, that everything's going to be all right, and they dress up their Christmas tree. They're putting all of these ornaments on it, but that does not hold up in a world that is as broken and as desperately ill as our world is. A man is miserable as he's ever been. Despite all of our wealth and prosperity, we're as miserable as we've ever been. And so how does he cope? Uh, Blaise Pascal was this 17th century. He was a dude died way too early, but a lot of people did in the 17th century. They get a cold and they die. So the 17th century, I'm not making fun of people. I'm just saying back that it doesn't matter. 17th century, Blaise Pascal, he dies very early, but a brilliant guy. He's the one, if you've ever heard Pascal's wager, Pascal's wager was the thing where he said, okay, if you spend your life believing in a God, believing in God, and then you die and there is no God, you're really not out anything. But if you spend your life not believing in God, and you die and you're wrong and there is a God, well, now there's going to be big consequences. So it makes more sense to spend your life believing in God, because then if you're wrong, well, who really cares? We're all in the same boat. That's called Pascal's wager. You'll hear it sometimes in philosophy classes and all of that. But Blaise Pascal also said this. It's a perfect depiction of what man does. Being unable to cure death, wretchedness, and ignorance, man have decided in order to be happy not to think about such things. Is that not us? I, when I say us, I mean mankind. I don't mean you. Hopefully it's not you. Hopefully we have that Christian joy. But this is what man does. We plug our ears and we close our eyes and we never think about death until we have to. We don't, and I've said this before, it's wild how many things we as human beings plan for that we have no idea is ever going to happen. We plan for vacations. We don't know that we're ever going to go. We plan for our wedding. We don't know that we're ever going to fool somebody into marrying us. We plan for our kid's wedding, and we don't think there's any way that's going to happen, but we're still going to plan for it anyway. We plan all of our retirement, and many of us know we're not probably ever going to see it, but we plan for it anyway, and yet the one thing in life that we're guaranteed we try to pretend like it's never going to happen. I'm telling you, the older you get, the more you realize that it's inevitable. But in youth, I mean, you got people that, that think they're immortal. And you say, well, I don't really think I'm immortal. But you live as though you are. We don't wake up and think this could be it. This could be my last day on earth. I could ask you, and I'd probably get four or five of you that thought today, this might be my last day on earth. The rest of us just don't think about it. We think about what we're going to eat for lunch. We think about all of these other things. We're plugging our ears, we're closing our eyes, and we're not considering the one thing in life that we're guaranteed. We also don't dwell on our sinful condition. Man doesn't think about that. We think about other people's sinful condition, but not ours. This is the world's slogan. We're going to choose happiness. Man, if that isn't a Christmas tree ornament that you're putting over a dead tree, I don't know what is. I'm miserable, but I'm going to choose happiness today. I'm going to paint a smile on my face and go out and face the world. In a certain way, I, I, I applaud people that make that kind of valiant effort. And then at the other side, I feel, I feel really bad for them, that that's it, that that's what they have to do. Uh, worldly man, I would liken to ostriches. Do you know how disappointed I was to find out that it's not really true that an ostrich doesn't bury its head in the sand to avoid danger? I grew up believing that's why they did that. They're actually messing around with their eggs when they do that. It's just so disappointing because I love the thought of this rhinoceros coming at an ostrich and him just saying, uh-oh, and he puts his head in the ground to avoid Because what is that? That's what we do as kids, right? The monsters in the room. How do you avoid the monsters in your bedroom? Shoop, 
pull the sheet over your head. Because apparently these are the stupidest monsters in the world that don't realize that you're right there, the shape of your body, but you pull the sheet over and everything's fine. That's what worldly man does. We're pulling sheets over our heads. Think about it. The major reason, people, one of the major reasons people refuse to consider Christianity is what? One of the major reasons is, I want to have fun. Christianity isn't fun. I, this is what they say. I don't want to be a Christian because I want to enjoy myself in life. I just, there are sometimes in my, I just desperately want to be able to get across to people and I don't know how to do it and I want to be polite, but this is utter foolishness. I mean, that's the only word for it. It's not just dumb. It's not just stupid. This is what a fool believes. You're going to have fun apart from Christianity. Uh, English poet, Lord Byron. I'm sure you're all familiar with Lord Byron. You probably have many Lord Byron poems memorized. He was one of the great English poets. This was his life. He lived this way. He didn't want to consider Christianity because he wanted to enjoy life. He revealed in one of his poems a reality that he probably didn't intend to. This is just one line in one of his poems. There's not a joy in the world, sorry, there's not a joy the world can give like that it takes away. You see what he's saying? Think of the greatest thing the world can give you. Sexual pleasure? With multiple partners, I'm going to enjoy sexual freedom or great wealth and prosperity. However great that is, think about the pain associated when that is inevitably taken away. Because the world will take it away. Whatever great thing you get now, whatever fun you're going to have right now, think how painful it will be when that, the thing that you've lived for, is taken away from you because it's coming it's going to happen. And I know young people getting ready to head back to school, they're not thinking that. They're in the prime of their lives. There are people who have a little bit whiter or grayer hair that can tell you that those grand pleasures of life slowly over time are no longer possible. If I can be blunt, Steve Jobs had everything. He had wealth and prosperity. He'd walk out on a stage and thousands of people would gather and they'd have these huge screens behind him that would display the newest device they'd come up with. Steve Jobs was at the pinnacle of anything a human could have. Anything. And then he got cancer and got really sick. And he couldn't walk out on stage. Do you know how awful that must have been for somebody that was able to do all of that to sit there and realize, I'll never be able to do that again. There's not a joy the world will give you that will equal the pain associated with it taking, it taking away. Carl Lewis was once the fastest man on earth until Usain Bolt came around. Carl Lewis, by the time he was in his late 30s, developed debilitating arthritis in his spine. Some days it's difficult for Carl Lewis, the, the world-class Olympian, world record holder sprinter, to even walk. There's not a joy the world will bring that will equal the pain associated with it taking it away. Hugh Hefner... All of those great earthly pleasures and carnal pleasures he enjoyed. He got old and saggy and gross. Uh, sorry, but he did. And he had paralyzing back pain. Oh, he probably slept with more women than you could even count. But there, there came a day when no woman wanted to be near him because he was gross and old and saggy. And he couldn't move. And he lost it all. Imagine what he's thinking as all of those things that he'd lived for, he no longer could have. That's what Lord Byron is talking about. You can paint a smile on your face and pretend that that stuff is going to bring you happiness. It will disappear at some point in time. The world's counterfeit joy, 
this happiness, this elation that they try to cover up with, it cannot admit how bad they were inwardly suffering. They can't acknowledge how bad things are. They have to paint over it. They can't reveal how bad they're actually hurting. They can't recognize how lost the world is. The world isn't able to do that. When things get darker like this, eventually the world's joy goes out because there's nothing there of consequence. And it's in those moments that the Christian joy shines all the brighter. Why? Why is that the case? Well, let me tell you why that's the case. Christian joy can face each of those realities. I can be honest with you about how bad things are. And I can be honest with you about how bad I'm hurting and we're hurting. I can be honest about how lost the world is. I don't have to hide from those realities. I can because my joy is based on an objective reality, not my subjective feelings. Let me read it. You don't have to turn there. I want to read this to you. Don't turn there. So help me stay out of there. I'm going to read this to you. This is what Peter says. See if this makes sense. Listen to these words. This is what makes us different. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and into an inheritance that can never perish, can never spoil, can never fade. It is kept in heaven for you. You who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes, even gold perishes when refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Now listen, verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible joy and glorious joy. That's it. Do you notice something about what Peter is saying right there? Christian joy is anchored in those truths. Have nothing to do with my circumstances. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who in his infinite mercy has saved me and promised me something that can never perish, can never spoil. All that joy that the world's going to suck away can't touch what is waiting for us. Because what Christ Jesus has done. That's it. Peter is not talking about our feelings. He, he mentions it one time. He mentions your feelings one time. Though you've had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. For a little while, you've had to suffer that, that grief. But that's not what he's focusing on. He's talking about our beliefs, the things that we are sure of. And what is it that we are sure of? We know how sinful we are. And we know how miserable sin makes us. And we know that we are delivered from our sin and our misery. And we know the gratitude that we have for God for that. That's a math equation right there. You take the guilt that we know who and what we are. And you add to that the grace of God that is incomprehensible. And that leads to our gratitude. You add all of that up and it equals Christian joy. That's what you and I possess. Alistair Begg, I've mentioned him before. Lynn had that book by him, was up on the stage. We all remember, remember the camel. But she had that book by Alistair Begg as she was talking about the Pray Big. She let me read it, loved it. Alistair Begg got this note in 2009 at a speaking engagement. I love this. Check this out. Dear Pastor Begg, a friend was suffering through brain cancer and its treatments. His relationship with Jesus was such that the nurse on duty wrote as a critical comment on his chart, Mr. X is inappropriately joyful. 
I love that. That's what I want. I want people of the world to look and say, uh, what is wrong with him? He is, this is inappropriate. Your joy in these circumstances is completely... Now, Peter calls it inexpressible joy. The nurse is calling it inappropriate joy. That's what we're after. That's what we have. Christian joy is the supernatural result. It can't be explained by medical doctors. It can't be explained by natural causes because it's a supernatural result of God living inside us. Notice that's not an ornament you're putting on a tree. The joy is coming from within. It's the apple tree that is producing the fruit. God lives in us and joy is a natural consequence of that. It's not something that you're arbitrarily hanging on the tree. That's what you read. What's it based on now? You can open your Bible. Flip to John 16. This is what you read. You weren't allowed to before. John 16, I want to focus in on verses 19 through 24. I'm doing you a favor. Did you notice in reading this, even John does, the Old Testament writers are really notorious for this, where they repeat the same conversation three times. I don't know why, but that bothers me. Like, the disciples are wondering this. Jesus knew that they were wondering, and then they repeat everything the disciples were wondering, and then Jesus asks them, why are you wondering, and then they repeat the whole same thing again. Anyway, that's what's going on. I'm going to skip down to verse 19. Jesus saw what the disciples wanted to ask him, and so he said to them, Are you asking one another what I meant when I said, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? I tell you the truth, you will meet, weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. I tell you the truth, my father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. Okay, when Jesus is saying in a little while, you're going to grieve. Well, what is he talking about? He's talking about at his crucifixion. When that happens, the world will rejoice because they got rid of me. You will grieve. You will mourn. But then in a little while, you're going to see me again. And when you see me after my resurrection, you will have joy. Meeting the resurrected Jesus will bring you joy and nobody is going to take it away. No one can take away that joy. The you there, he's not talking just to the emotional disciples. You who experience emotions and you get all teary about stuff, you are going to experience great joy. No, all of you are going to experience joy. And it's not just them. It's us. Us too, because we have met the resurrected Jesus as well. Have you ever wondered something? This right here is the tomb of Muhammad. You can go and visit the prophet Muhammad. And there's, there's two holes over here. And you can look to the right. And each hole points towards uh, like a... It's not a casket, but like a a tomb. And they're two of Muhammad's uh, big imams that were his favorite imams. And they're buried right there. The big hole, and you look off to the left, that's the tomb of Muhammad. So you can go and visit that. And many Muslims will go and, and will pay homage to and take a pilgrimage to this burial site, Muhammad. This one right here is the burial temple of Confucius. So you have people in China that go who, who, are Confu- who belong to Confucianism and all of that stuff. And they'll go and they'll pay homage to Confucius there and worship at that shrine. 
This one here is Joseph Smith, the Mormon prophet. And many Mormons will go and make the pilgrimage there and will visit his tomb and his shrine and will worship there. And then this one is my favorite. Um, they cremated Siddhartha Gautama, who was the Buddha. They cremated him when he died. Um, they think they found the box in China that had his ashes. But this is called the Sanctuary of the Tooth. Because they have a tooth that they believe was the Buddha's. And so you have all these Buddhists who will go and consider this a really holy place. And they'll sit there and they'll buzz and they'll hum. And they will become one with the forces that are out there. This is a really holy place because it's got his tooth there. Okay, have you ever stopped to wonder and think about this? Why, by the year 120, Christians didn't even really know where the tomb of Jesus was. They couldn't find it. Now, today we have a people that say, well, we think that this was it. We think, nobody knows. Christians don't know where the tomb of Jesus was. Why? All these religious leaders have these shrines that are made to them that people go to. I think you know the answer to this question. I get on my son Grayson all the time. Why? Because he's messy and he leaves his shoes and his flip-flops all over the place. I go in his room and he's got all this trash that's just built up. And I get on him about it because it's worthless. Throw this stuff away. Pick your shoes up. I'm tired of looking at them. Because he's here, so that stuff doesn't matter to me. But one day when Grayson goes off to college or gets married, those things that are sitting there that remind me of him are, are going to be a little bit more valuable than what they are right now. Right now they're annoying. Or God forbid, what if we, we were to lose Grayson? People sometimes leave those rooms untouched because those shoes and all of those things, it helps them remember when he was here. That's why those people go to those tombs, because it helps them remember when that person was here, it's so much more valuable. That's why you go to D.C., you go to the Peterson house, and you can see the bed that hasn't been touched where they laid Abraham Lincoln. Okay, diagonal, because he was too tall for the bed, and he's laying there, and he's dying. You can go and see all of that. People leave it alone because it reminds them of when they were here. Why did we bury Osama bin Laden at sea? So that no Muslim terrorist could go and visit the shrine of Osama bin Laden. Because it's out there in the ocean somewhere. We wanted to deprive them of that. That's the point I'm getting at. Christians didn't need to preserve the tomb of Jesus as a shrine because he wasn't there. And they knew that he wasn't there. They had him. We have him. He lives inside me. I don't need to go to a place and visit. I think this was his tooth. I don't need to go there. He lives in me. So that's where I go to find Christ. It's not just the disciples who met the risen Lord. We all have, assuming that you've come to Christ, you've met the resurrected Lord. Notice, Jesus does not say, your joy will come one day when I come back and you meet me in the sky, you will have joy. That is not what he said. He said, once I come back from the dead and you meet me, the resurrected Lord, like each of us who are baptized believers in Christ, we have met the resurrected Lord and he lives in us. Encountering Jesus brings joy. Let me prove that to you. Okay? I don't know if you've thought about this this way or not. John chapter 2 records the first miracle of Jesus. Do you know what the first miracle of Jesus was? Somebody, come on, come on, come on. Water into wine, yes, very good. Water into wine. Have you stopped to think about this? The wedding feast at Cana, when Jesus is launching his public ministry, and he's letting everybody know who and what he is, what is the first thing that he does? This guy does not raise someone from the dead. He doesn't heal blinded eyes. He doesn't demonstrate his power over nature by telling a storm to calm down. The first thing this man does is what? He takes 150 gallons of water and turns it into incredible wine to take a party to the next level. That's what Jesus does in his first public miracle. 
Think about that. What is he saying by doing that? 150 gallons of incredible wine. So much so that the host comes and says, dude, typically everybody gives their good wine first and gets everybody ripped. And then they bring out the watered down stuff at the end. You've saved the best to last. I've never had wine like this. Jesus takes a party to the next level and actually calls himself, not in this context, but in a different, the Lord of the feast. All right? Then let's skip forward to when uh, the Spirit comes. In Acts chapter 2, and the church is born. When the Spirit of God comes and fills those people up, those apostles, what did everybody around that had gathered around say about them? Yeah, they got to be drunk. Look at these guys. What, what are they doing out there? Okay, what does that tell you about what happens to a soul when the Spirit of God and Jesus lives inside you? Now, those people must be plastered. Look at the fun that they're having out there. How about this one? Go to Luke chapter 1. If you got time, you can flip over there. It's just a few pages before John. Luke chapter 1. This is when Jesus is a fetus, okay? He is developing in the womb. You've got John the Baptist in the womb of Elizabeth. Go to uh, verse 39. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judah where she entered Zachariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. If you remember this, Elizabeth and Zachariah couldn't have a baby. God gives them a baby. It's going to be John the Baptist who is to prepare the way for his son that will be born from Elizabeth's cousin Mary, the Messiah, Jesus. Okay, So Mary goes to visit Elizabeth. That's what's happening here. Verse uh, 41. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you were bearing. Mary hasn't told her anything. She hasn't said anything about the baby that she's carrying. But Elizabeth knew because the Holy Spirit filled her. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Verse 44, as soon as the sound of your greeting. Hey, Elizabeth, as soon as that sound reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Even through the mama's tummy and a second mama's tummy, encountering Jesus, the baby leaps for joy. If I'm not proving this to you, I don't know what it's going to take. Encountering Jesus brings joy. Jesus teaches it himself. He says, a guy who finds salvation in me is like a really wealthy guy that goes out into a field and he finds a buried treasure. And what does he do? He goes and sells everything he has and he sells it with joy. I don't want this stuff anymore. Get rid of this stuff. So I've got the money to go and buy this field that has this treasure. That treasure is so much more valuable than anything that I had before. Encountering Jesus brings joy. Think about your conversion to Christ. Paul writes to the Thessalonians, You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message, the message of salvation, in the midst of what? All of your pain. You welcome the message of salvation in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. In the midst of your suffering, you had joy because of that message. All right, think this through. What is the message of salvation? Well, we know the message of salvation. To know that Jesus is God's son. To know that Jesus died on a cross. To know that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, who else knows all of those things are true? You know who else knows this? James tells you. James says even the demons believe all of that. The demons know the message of salvation. They know Jesus was God's son, that he died on a cross, and that he rose from the dead. The demons know all of that and shudder, is what James says. So what's the difference? What is the difference between a believer and a demon? Well, the difference is we receive the message with joy. 
That's it. We have the joy. The devils are repulsed by the message. We embrace the message of salvation with joy. If you have, there's some of us that believe joy is optional. Well, there are some, there's some people that just have joy in their life. I would love to be like that. It's not optional. It's not optional for a Christian. It can't be optional because it's a natural result of the Spirit of God living in you. Jesus says joy will come. It has to. It happens naturally as a result of meeting Jesus. The tree has no choice but to produce the fruit, and your life has no choice but to reflect that joy. Jesus used the example of a pregnant woman. When her time has come, the baby's on its way. Some of you have been pregnant. Some of you have had babies. And when the water breaks and the baby's ready to make its grand appearance, you don't get to say, hey, hey, hang on, going to finish the show. The baby doesn't care. Your time has come and she's a coming and you got to get there. That's what he's saying. When you meet me, it's going to happen. Joy will come. So if you are a Christian and you're living in bitterness, why? We're choosing that. If everything that encounters Jesus leaps with joy, even John the Baptist in the womb that didn't even talk to Jesus, he's a fetus and he's leaping for joy, then what is going on with some of us? Christian joy is inevitable. So if it is not evident in your life, there's only one explanation. And that is that you are stopping it somehow. So what is that? How? Let me give you three common hindrances that I see in Scripture. We'll close with these. Number one is foolishness. It's what Paul writes about in Romans 1, about those who in foolishness turn their back on God. That's one way that you can do this. Uh, C.S. Lewis put it this way. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a vacation at the ocean, we are far too easily pleased. We're taking our time with the mud pie. Let me give you a more, uh, we don't do mud pies these days. Do you know how frustrating it is to surprise your kids with a trip to Walt Disney World and one of them cries because they're going to have to miss a day at the Howard County 4-H Fair? Do you know how obnoxious? Well, you would rather get on that ride over there that's got a screw dangling from it. It was put together by a guy that didn't pass the second grade at 3 o'clock in the morning. He's going on no sleep. You'd rather do that than go to Walt Disney World. That's it. We'd rather fiddle about with 4-H fair rides when a trip to Disney is being offered to us. What an ignorant, foolish child. <laughs> Doesn't matter which one. That's what C.S. Lewis is saying right there. Here's the second reason. Don't be caught up in the foolishness of the world. Second one is forgetfulness. This is what Psalm 103 says. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. How can you forget this? In everything you're going through, how can you forget this? Who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like eagles. One of the most obvious corks that plugs the fountain of joy in our life is forgetting what Christ has done for us. We become mired in everything else going around. Why did Jesus establish the practice of communion? So people didn't forget. Why did the early church do it every week? It's the same reason why we do it every week. Because we don't want to forget in the course of our busy, hectic lives what Christ has done. And finally is this. I think faint-heartedness is another reason why Satan wants to take you back to your sin. It's what he desires more than anything else. He wants to make you cower and collapse in the face of it. And he'll lure you in with the obsession of feelings and emotions. You'll say things like, well, I, I just don't feel like I'm growing. 
I just don't feel like I'm growing in Christ. And it will discourage you and you will turn to other things because of faint-heartedness. I want you to remember something. That apple tree is growing even when you don't see it. Granny Grandpa's house on East Peyton Street. When I was a kid, we would come up here for the fair every year. And those trees were tiny. And my Uncle Chris, I don't know if he's here today or not, but Uncle Chris would take Andrew and I back there and he told us the secret to making trees grow. And we would spit giant hawkers on all of those trees as we would walk through the backyard. And we'd get back and Granny would be so fit to be tied with Uncle Chris. Christopher Wells, why are you teaching those boys to do that? I never, I just, I remember those whole scenes. And now I go past that house and those trees are huge. I don't remember them growing. I mean, it's the magic of saliva. I don't remember them growing, but they did. Your tree is growing even when you don't see that. Oh, you're going through pain and suffering. We all do that. We all have winters. The tree grows even in the winter when you don't see its blossoms, when you don't see its fruit. It's still growing. That's why scripture says, don't grow weary in doing good. For in due season, we will reap if we faint not. Don't be faint-hearted. That's what Satan is trying desperately to snuff out at you. This is what Charles Spur how he puts it, Charles Spurgeon. The joy of the Lord is what does the most damage to Satan's empire. I love that. But it also tells me why Satan is so determined to strip away our joy. Because he hates it. There is nothing that Satan can't handle more than truly joyful believers. He cannot handle when he tempts you to despair. And when he tempts you and reminds you of your guilt. And what do you do? In the midst of that, you turn and look up and smile at the one who put an end to your suffering and your guilt and your misery. You want to hear Satan shriek? Nothing will cause it like that right there. That tells me exactly what I want to do. Had you read Psalm 95. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. I'm telling you, those truths right there, those truths is where we find joy regardless of our circumstances. That's what we have that the world doesn't. It's why Martin Luther, the German monk, started the Reformation. He had such an incredible response. Whenever he would get bad news, the worst news a human being can get, his response was always the same. they tell him the bad news and how would Luther respond? Come, come then. Let's sing a psalm and spite the devil. He's trying so hard. Let's spite him by praising the Lord. That's the life I want. So much so I want people to say of me, Mr. Heck is inappropriately joyful. Father God, I pray for that joy. I pray for that joy that is the indwelling of your spirit in us. That is untouched by the circumstances, the pain and the sorrow of life. Father, so many of us answer the question when we're asked how we're doing. Well, under the circumstances, I'm doing fine. Forgive us of that sin. May we not live under the circumstances. May we live above them because that's where you are and it's where you've called us to be. Remind us of that truth. Help us guard against the faint-heartedness and the foolishness and the forgetfulness that is part of our human nature and help us to place our joy everlasting in you. 
This is our prayer, and we ask it in the name above every other name, the name of Jesus Christ, and everyone said.